What do you do? You know, if you travel very much, chances are you hear that question a lot. That's the first question you're going to be asked usually when you sit down on an airplane with somebody or you're sitting in an airport. What do you do? And, uh, you know, we understand what that question means. It's uh, what do you do for a living? And uh, so we're, we're accustomed to that. And I think there's, a, there's an aspect, an unspoken aspect in that in which we sort of measure people according to what do you do. And you get home sometimes from a flight say, you know, I was sitting next to a CEO of a corporation. You know, very rarely we say, I was sitting next to somebody who works for McDonald's. So uh, you can just think about that. We sort of have that in the back of our mind that we tend to judge each other by, by what you do for a living. Um, my situation is a little weird because I don't want people to know what I do for a living because it just changes the whole dynamic of the conversation. Because you get on an airplane, sitting down next to somebody, you have a perfectly normal conversation, especially if you're leaving Wichita. You're like, do you live here or did you have to come here? So it's just sort of like... Uh, that's how the conversation goes, very normal, very natural and everything. And then somebody asks you what you do for a living. So early on when I was traveling and, and I would tell people, I noticed that it just really changed the dynamic of the conversation. And so I've come up with this. People ask me, what do you do for a living? I say, guess. And uh, <laughs> Now that's always been really comforting because I got to tell you, number one answer is, is lawyer and number two is advertising. I have never in my career, had anybody guessed minister? What does that tell you? Or what does it tell me? I don't know. Uh, but that's the question we ask. What do you do? What do you do? I think we're going to learn today that's the wrong question to ask. In fact, if Jesus were to meet you today out in the lobby here at New Spring, um, I don't think he would ask you what you do. I think he'd ask you a different question. We'll get to that in just a moment. But let, me, let me start with this. How would you classify your job? I want to give you three classifications and see where you would plug your job in. Let's say you have a Category 1 job. In a Category 1 job, you have a total sense of mission and purpose, and every day in your life is just fulfilling. You just walk in, and it's like like flying on a a cloud. Everything is wonderful. You get along with everybody. You just have this sense of peace, and it's like, I am changing the world, and I am impacting eternity. That is Category 1. Category 2. I'm in category two job. You just say, well, you know, I don't know that I have all that sense of purpose. It, it doesn't grind on me. Um, um, but by the same token, when I get through with the eight-hour shift or 10-hour shift or 16-hour shift, um, I don't feel like saint. It's, and here's what you would say. It's just business. It's just business. I, I'm, I'm in business. I do business. I, I have customers. I have clients. I, I sell things. I do surgeries. I try cases. Uh, I, I'm, you know, I dig out sewer lines. I, it's just business. I, it's, it's, um, it's just business. That's category two. Category three would be um, you have an ugly job. Every once in a while, I hear people use words, other words to describe it, words that none of us should say, <laughs> words I heard my grandfather, who was a rancher, use out in the pasture. But some of you have a job like that, and you would say, Mark, it's an ugly job. Um, I, you know, it's like you know, every day I have a hard time just getting out of bed and going to work because I know I'm facing an ugly job. But here's what you would tell me, though. You would say this in more honest moments. You would say, but it has to be done. The world is such that if nobody does my job, it's, you know, you, know, you always feel like this. Nobody is very impressed by what I do, but let me not do it for a few weeks. Let everybody who does this ugly job that I do just check out and see how they like it then. So as you think about the kind of job you do, would it be a category job, nothing but mission and purpose? Category two, just business. Or would it be category three, you have an ugly job, 
Because here's the thing, while you're thinking about that, I'm guessing that some of you here are in a Category 2, Category 3 job, and you're saying to yourself, I would so love to upgrade to Category 1. For instance, I know Wichita. Uh, we have a lot of engineers in Wichita. I have a lot of engineers here at New Spring. So it could be that you're an engineer at one of our aircraft manufacturing companies, another manufacturing company, or perhaps you're just an engineer in some other fashion. You have to use mathematics a whole lot. And every day you go to work, you make a nice income, but you say to yourself, I would love to have a sense of purpose because each day I deal with this set of drawings, I deal with this issue, this project, and I don't know that I'm really making a difference in the world. And you could be saying to yourself, you know what I really think I should do? I think I should just move away from the rat race of being an engineer and I should be a, I should be a junior high mathematics teacher because I would have, it would be a category one job. I would have this overwhelming sense of purchase, pur purpose. I guess I misfired on that word there because I thought somewhere out in my audience is a junior high mathematics teacher going. <laughs> or it could be that you lead an organization and you say to yourself, I, I, it just really looks impressive what Mark does. Mark talks to people and he gets to see people's lives change. So maybe what I need to do is I need to leave behind my high paying career and I need to upgrade from a category three or category two job to a category one where all I experience is purpose. Well, before you think about that, maybe you need to hear from group four here. There's a fourth group here that's really, really big. And you really probably haven't heard too much of what I've said in the last few minutes because you're still, you're still, you're still hung up on my question, which is a category one, category two, category three. You're saying, well, Mark, you don't really understand. I really can't answer that question. It uh, does not apply because my job has aspects of it that are purposeful. There are times in my job that I feel like I really do have a sense of meaning, sense of purpose. It is euphoric at times. And then there's just lots of times where it's just business. And I have ugly aspects of my job. So I just really don't know how to answer your question. I'm, I'm in, I guess, category four because I have elements of one, two, and three in my job. Well, I think you're, you're the average person here. And maybe if we'll stop and think about it, we're really all in category four. Because here's the thing, if, if God is telling you to leave your engineering career and go teach mathematics in junior high school, that's a great idea. If God is telling you to leave running your company to become a missionary or a minister, that's a fantastic idea. But if all you're looking at doing is upgrading your sense of purpose from one job to another, could I just tell you, the, the, the person who is here, honestly, who has the closest thing to a category job, to category one job, is my job. I get to lead, lead, lead New Spring Church, and I can't imagine... A more awesome job than that. And yes, it is euphoric most of the time. I was here last weekend, and one after the other, people came to me and told me how their lives were being impacted and changed, totally transformed by New Spring Church. And so there's aspects of my job that's euphoric. But if you followed me around, you know, here's what you would be surprised, I think, if you followed me around. If you could follow me for seven days a week, you would be amazed at how much of my job is just business. It's business. In fact, I've helped churches sort through Poor leadership, poor business leadership from their senior leader. I've helped churches work through that, and I would come home, and I would just say to anybody who would listen to me in my house as I threw down my luggage, nobody should be able to be a pastor unless he's had an undergrad in business and then gone to seminary. So yeah, there, there are aspects of what I do that's just business decisions. I mean, you imagine an organization this large with a staff and, and budgets and challenges and all the things that we deal with. There's a lot of my job that's just business. And thankfully, there's not a whole lot of this. There has been it in times. But there are parts of my job that are ugly. In fact, in seasons of my life, I would go home and I would say to Mary Alice, how do they talk anybody into doing this job? 
And we also say they don't talk you into it. God calls you into it. I hated it when she said that. It's like, I'm not talking to you anymore about this. And on some very rare occasions, and I've shared this with you before, at some ugly times during the transition that we had 10 years ago, I would find myself going to bed at night and saying, God, if you don't let me wake up in the morning, I'll count it a personal favor. So yeah, I have the greatest job in the world, but I can tell you, there, there are parts of my job that are euphoric, there are parts of my job that are just business, and from time to time, there are parts of my job that are ugly. And I'm not trying, by the way, I'm not trying to talk to any of you who's thinking about a career change and tell you that it's a bad idea. It may be a good idea. I'm just trying to make sure that you don't walk away with unrealistic expectations. 20 years ago or so, I was asked to do a conference for a leadership group or the leaders of an organization in New Jersey. I had no business doing that conference. I'm going to tell you, our church at that time was not a particularly big church, maybe four or 500 people. Um, I was in my 30s. I don't have the most stellar theological education. And this was an organization that was a think tank. And not only was it a think tank, theological think tank, but it was a a think tank for theologians who drilled down in one particular area of theology. So I I knew all these people who were going to gather, most of the people who were going to gather. I had read their books. I'd read their magazines. I had read their magazine articles. I'd read their journals. You know, I mean, they were considered the very leaders in the very top echelon of speakers and writers on this particular theme. And I'm pastor of a church in Wichita, Kansas in my 30s. I have no idea how I wound up being conference speaker. If you've ever been a conference speaker, let me tell you this, and you, you, can, you can sort of understand my, my situation. They wanted me to speak four mornings and four nights. I was their only speaker to speak eight times. That's an awful lot of times to speak in a conference. I promise you, if you're speaking eight times at a conference, you're going to reveal your ignorance somewhere along the line, <laughs> maybe substantially. So here was my thought. I said... You know, I'm going to get in there with all these theologues and these great brains and these people that I respect, and I'm anxious to hear from them, and they're going to want to hear something that's really cerebral from me. So I'm going to take about two or three weeks of my schedule and just block it off, and I'm going to come up with some really intelligent stuff to impress these people. But alas, that didn't happen. Because even then, I went seven days a week. And, and so I got, I remember the day I was going to get on the airplane. I didn't have anything prepared for this group. This is before the age of computers, so I remember, well, I mean, they were around, but not like they are today. I reached back into my file cabinet and grabbed a big handful of file folders, just randomly, of stuff I'd brought at New Spring. Some of it on Sunday morning, some of it on Sunday night, some of it on Wednesday Bible studies. Think about this. I was carrying stuff I'd spoken to a handful of people on Wednesday nights to talk to one of the most cerebral theological groups in the nation. Authors, writers, producers of great material. But I remember one night, and I was speaking as early in the conference, and I don't know why, but for some reason I pulled out a sermon on forgiveness and how do we have to forgive people who hurt us. Well, why would you do that? Why would you go talk to this brilliant group of theologians about forgiveness? I don't know, but I didn't have any brains, and I did it anyway. I gave this talk on forgiveness. Three things happened at the end of that service. One was the, 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 the chairman of the organization A world-renowned leader stood up before his group, and they only gathered like once every three years and gathered all their team together, you know, for this conference. And he said, you know, through the years we've brought speakers in, and they've all tried to tell us where the ashes of the red heifer are, something like that. And he said, Mark is the first one who's ever just come in and treated us like a congregation. I thought, well, there's a reason for that. (laughs) 
But he went on to talk about how meaningful the service had been. And then there was a long queue of people to talk to me afterwards. Also, remember that there was a, a, not only were these leaders there, there were also people who would come from around the world to be part of this conference. And so right behind them was a pulpit committee, and there's a big group of people from the Northeast that were saying, would you come be our pastor? And I said, no, Kansas is as far north as I go. <laughs> and the church was just beginning to grow, so I, I didn't have an interest in it. If God had made me, I would have done it, but I didn't want to do it. But where I really remember what I'm getting to is right behind that was a man, middle-aged. He looked elderly at the time to me. He's probably in his late 50s. Um. <laughs> he and his wife said, can we talk to you for a few moments? And, and I said, sure. And I was standing there talking to a group of people lined up to talk to me. He said, no. he said, when you get through talking to all these people, he said, would it be possible for us to go someplace secluded and sit down and talk? So I remember we, 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 we went to a place away from the conference center auditorium, and I sat down with this man and his wife, and he began to sob. And he told me this story. He said, I was a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University. I don't know what that means to you, but I will tell you this. The psychiatry department at Johns Hopkins University is substantial. It is the third highest-ranked psychiatry, psychological, uh, psychology department in the nation. I mean, it's ahead of Menninger and, Menninger and, and uh, Mayo. So, I mean, you don't get to be a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins unless you, you're really something special. And he said, I was a psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University, but he said, I, I said to myself, after thinking about it a lot, I need to leave the rat race and go do something that's purposeful and meaningful. And so he said, I left psychiatry and I came to work for this organization. And as he sat there with tears streaming down his face, he said this to me. He said, the greatest hurts I've ever experienced were not at Johns Hopkins. The greatest hurts I've ever experienced are in ministry. So I'm just trying to tell you this. <laughs> you know, this category one job where everything is meaningful and purposeful and you have this sense of euphoria where you sort of fly along in the cloud, it's sort of like the Loch Ness Monster. People talk about it, but nobody's ever seen it. That kind of job really does not exist. Well, you see, <laughs> wow, Mark, this is really depressing. Is this going somewhere today? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> no, no, it is. It is, and we're going to talk about that. You know, we've been in the book of Nehemiah. We've been talking about building principles, and, and you know enough about this if you've been with us the last few weeks to know that Nehemiah is in charge of building walls, the walls around a city. And if you want the background, the history of this, you can check it out with Sermon 1 or 2 of the series. But let's just get caught up. Nehemiah is a, is a uh, He's an executive. He's not a religious leader. He's an executive who is leaving behind a very cushy job, travel 600 miles across the desert to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem because it's a ghost town with a temple in the middle, but no walls. So it's not secure and nobody can live there. We know that. Last week, I shared with you uh, the importance of prep work. Before they started building the walls, I said Nehemiah had to do four things. And we talked about one, two, and four. He prayed he went through a time of honest analysis and evaluation, and then lastly, we said he had to do site work. I left out number three. I want to talk about number three today. Now, again, just, just getting, uh, getting started here, you know his job is to build the wall around the city. The reason for building a wall around the city is not cosmetic. The walls around the city represent security in those days. If there was a, a wall with no breach in it, people could go to sleep at night. But I just sort of left the caveat in there that's really important for us to consider. And it's this. The wall can have no breach. 
if the wall has any breach, if you finish all the wall except for 5%, there's no wall because the enemy will always search for the weakest part of the wall. In fact, Nehemiah came from the Persians who had defeated the Babylonians. And the way the Persians defeated the Babylonians, they had impregnable walls, Babylonians did. But the Persians diverted the river under the city, went under the tunnel, and came out and defeated the city of, of uh, the, the kingdom of Babylon. We'll talk about that in an upcoming series. So the job that Nehemiah has to do is very, very important. And not only do they have to build all the wall, there are 10 gates that are in the city walls. Now, the reason the gates are important was that you, you couldn't just bring anything in any gate. Gates were a way of managing the traffic of things going in, coming into the city or leaving the city. And the gates were very important. And for all of you who would think about this from an engineering perspective, you know that the gates are very important because they do represent, they represent control breaches in the wall. So the gates have to be done with extraordinarily high quality. Now, I'm not going to get too deep in this, but I just want you to know there were 10 gates and they had different purposes. Uh, there was the fish gate. There was the inspection gate. I'm not trying to be cute about Nixon, but there was the water gate. Uh, there was the horse gate, the valley gate, fountain gate, all kinds of gates. Now, the third thing that we didn't talk about last week is that what Nehemiah has got to do is he's got to organize. He has got to take all the human resources, all the, the building resources they have, and he has to put them in the right place. Obviously, not everybody can work on the same section of the wall. Not everybody can work on the same gate. So Nehemiah has got to assign people to places and gates, jobs to do. Now, now, now is where we're going to get back to the beginning of this talk, and I hope it starts making sense. you got to realize that the people who are going to work on these gates, we're going to have different feelings about the gate they were working on. Because these gates represented various levels of prestige. Now, I'm only going to pull out three of them, and, and because I think they'll help you understand when I started with the question I did. First of all, there was the sheep gate. That may not sound like very much to you and me, but the Jewish people... They, they, they worshiped in a, with, with sacrifices. And so the sheep gate was very sanctified. Sheep gate was where they brought the animals in for sacrifice. My goodness, on the Day of Atonement, most holy day of the Jewish year, they're going to bring sheep in, on, uh, the, the, the lamb in for sacrifice. So that was a very sacred job. It was a, it was a sanctified gate. I don't know what that means to you, but that's true. And then there was the fish gate. Now, the fish gate was just for business. You know, a lot of the business commerce was in fish. And so the fish gate was for bringing products in that were going to be sold. So basically, that would be the, if you were working on the fish gate, you would say, well, I worked on a business gate. And then there was the dung gate. The word dung just candidly means excrement. Um, now, you can think about this. And some of you have kids and grandkids. Don't you just think about this. You know, years pass, and you're talking to your grandkids about, you know, grand, Nana worked on the walls, or, or, or grand, Grandpa, you know, worked on the gates. Well, Grandpa, which gate did you work on? I worked on the sheep gate. Baby, do you realize that's where they're bringing the sacrifice in? I, I, I want to take you over and show you the gate that Grandpa worked on. Uh, and, and then it can say, well, I worked on the fish gate. And, and baby, that's really important because you know what? You got to make a living. And so the people that come into fish gates, you know, they're coming in to bring in their, and, and so when Nana was, was putting up those hinges on the gates, you know, all, all the things, all the money that, that we use to pay our bills, all that comes to the fish gate. How are you going to tell your grandchildren you worked on a dung gate? Say, Grandpa, what was that again you did? I worked on the dung gate. Um, say, that, say that again for me. 
I worked on the Dungate. The Dungate. Oh, I would love to go see what you did. Can we go there? Oh, baby, it wouldn't be a good idea. <laughs> you see what I mean? But a few moments ago, I, I told you, I think if you ran into Jesus in the halls, he wouldn't ask you what you do. I think he would ask you a very different question. Because our chapter today is Nehemiah 3. And Nehemiah 3, for those of you who like to read through your Bibles, candidly, it's probably the kind of chapter you would skip. It's almost like a chapter with the bagats in it, you know? Because it's just a list of people who worked on the walls. And here's what I find interesting about the people who worked on the walls. Because it doesn't seem to say, well, well, Seth over here was very important. And very important in our community. And we liked him better than we liked anybody else. So we said, you go work on the sheep gate. And and uh, Mary over here, well, she, she's a nice person, and, and uh, you know, we put her over here on the fish gate, you know, and man, I'll tell you what, uh, Mark over here, he's just a loser, and so we put him on the dung gate. I, I think if we're thinking the way we think in our culture today, that's kind of how we would do it, but when you read Nehemiah chapter 3, there doesn't seem to be the emphasis on the importance of the job because, hey, work with me for a moment. If any part of this wall isn't going to work, if any gate doesn't work, all of it comes to nothing. But there are four things that the Bible does emphasize, and here's the question I think that God would ask you if he met you today here. He wouldn't ask you, what do you do for a living? Here's the question he would ask. What kind of worker are you? What kind of worker are you? I mean, God's not asking you if you're, if you're the managing partner. God's not asking you if you're, if you're chief resident. God's not asking you if you're CEO. God wants to know what kind of worker you are. Whether you work in a sub-minimum wage job or you're head of a company. What kind of worker are you? Now I want to show you four things real quick that stand out to me from chapter 3. These are building principles. And if you want to ask yourself, what kind of worker are you, then all you got to do is you got to look at, at this scripture here and just see how you would evaluate yourself. And the first thing I notice is that uh, the people that built the walls, and I love this, they weren't too big for the job. Do you ever meet anybody who's too big for the job? I've, I've talked to people like that, especially during times where the economy's not good. And I have somebody in my office say, well, I just can't get a job. And I say, well, have you, have you tried to find a job? Yeah. Well, have you been offered anything? Well, yeah, I've been offered this, but I'm overqualified for that. You know, it's really important not to be too big to do the jobs. You know, and I don't even intend to say this, but, you know, there are probably guys here who are too big to help your wife around the house. This is too big for that. I am too big for that kind of work. Really? Let me read a verse to you. The Bible says, Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles, and I love this translation, did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. And why didn't they lift a finger? Because they were nobles. They were important and too important to work on a wall, too important to work on a gate. Can you see them there with their arms crossed? Now the people from their community came and helped build the walls, but the nobles didn't do it. And guys, let me just tell you this, and I really wish I knew how to say this. Do you, want, you know why the nobles didn't, didn't help with the wall? They had to work under supervision. Let me tell you something. If you're so big, you can't work under supervision, you're too big for your britches, as we see in Texas. You know what? If you're so big that you can't, if you're, if you're so big that you can't, if you can't follow instructions, if you're so big that you can't follow the rules of the corporation, if you're so big that you can't follow the, the business rules of the United States of America, you're too big. 
And so that's the thing that I see about these guys. You know, um, at the risk of being personal, one of the things I love about New Spring is that we live and die with volunteers. And there aren't a whole lot of jobs to do at New Spring because we don't do a whole lot of ministries. We just want to do well with everything we do. So there's Kids World, and then there's First Impressions. It's everything from the parking lot to coffee and, and, and a few things like that. And so I want to thank all of you who do this. But one of the things that really blesses me is how many of you who the world might consider very, very important, you're not too big to do very needed what others might consider ordinary jobs. I remember... I have a good friend who came to faith here. He was a trial attorney. He said, Mark, he said, and one of the best in the region, he said, Mark, I don't know anything much about the Bible, but he said, I see these guys out in the parking lot. I think I could do that. And I love that. A couple years ago, well, that's maybe not been two full years ago, I got sick on stage. I don't know if any of you were here that day. About four years ago, I started having some very strange symptoms and scary symptoms. And it wasn't stroke, but it was stroke-like. There were aspects of it that were stroke-like. Freaked me out. It's kind of what led me to hit the wall four years ago, if you've heard me tell that story. But anyway, after I got past that, I would go along finally. But every once in a while, without warning, I would have these symptoms. And so I, I, there was one weekend I wasn't feeling real good at the beginning of the weekend, but I made it through four sermons. I made it through two discoveries, and I was coming into the 1130 service, and I got up on stage, and I could tell I really was starting to feel bad. And what happens is your mind starts getting foggy with this particular thing, and I couldn't think of the word church, so I knew I was in trouble. And so I told the audience, I said, I'm not feeling very well. I'm going to step off the stage, and they're going to play a video, and you'll see the rest of the sermon from an earlier service. By the t my office is not far from here. By the time I got to my office, it was starting already to fill up with medical personnel who had heard the message. One of the people who walked in my office was taking off an apron from the coffee shop. He was a doctor. And I got to tell you, what's really interesting is I'd been to several other doctors. He, diagnosed, he asked me about my He diagnosed it just right there. And it turns out it's nothing too serious. It's just going to have to live with it. And he diagnosed it, nailed it. But I still remember this that day. He was taking off his apron from the coffee shop. And he said, well, Mark, this happened at a good time because I was cleaning out the urn. See what I'm saying? God's not going to ask you what he, and by the way, he's still here. He's still doing that job. God's not asking you what you do. He's asking you what kind of worker you are. Are you too big? I mean, honestly, I mean, oh gosh, I didn't, I didn't plan this. Some of you are too big to help at New Spring. You're too big to help with Kids World. You're too big to help with First Impressions. Could I just tell you something? You're too big. I don't think you're nearly that big. And that's the thing about, and wait till we get to another part. You'll understand in just a few minutes. Let me go to the second thing. The second thing that God is going to focus on is not, are you too big for the job? But the second thing God's going to focus on is, do you do more than is required? As you read through chapter 3, you see uh, about six times God single out an individual. And I just want to read them to you. Okay, here's, here's verse 11. Malchijah repaired another section in the Tower of Ovens. Verse 19. Um, uh, Ezer repaired another section. Verse 21, Merimoth repaired another section. 24, Benui repaired another section. 27, the men of Tekoa repaired another section. It's probably because their leaders, they were embarrassed about their leaders. And then verse 30, Hanan repaired another section. There, there's nothing here about, they, this person was important because the job they were assigned to. 
The only thing that God singles out was they did more than they were required to do. They got to the end of their assignment and said, I believe we'll do something else here. And they did it in the section. And God put them, think about this. God put their names in the holiest book in the world, the Bible. Their names are written down for one reason. And that single reason is they did more than was required. One more thing. I'm ashamed of myself for doing this. But if those verses were up on the screen, you'll notice an ellipsis after the names of the, verse of, the men, of the men who worked and did an extra section. I'm ashamed of putting it in for time's sake because you know what, the, what that ellipsis represents, those dots? It was the names of their parents. In other words, God was saying, this person and these parents, these, this, these people were his parents. God was saying, this person repaired another section. I just think it's significant. What's interesting about this is a lot of those parents were probably long gone. Can you imagine a guy getting to heaven and saying, hey, Dad, so good to see you. You realize we got our names in the Bible. And the only reason we got our names in the Bible is you taught me how to work. Thank you for teaching me to work. There's a whole generation of parents today. And you want to be the cool parent. And you got a boy sitting in there six, eight hours a day on video games. And you got a daughter sending out 500 texts a day. Could I lovingly tell you, you're not doing them any favors. We need parents today who will teach their kids to work. And by the way, it was an equal opportunity job. I love this. This is verse 12. Shalom, who was one of the mayors, and his daughters repaired a section. Now, I just love this because I had this in my mind. There's the leaders of Tekoa. They're standing over there. They're too big to the work. You see these girls over there with the sleeves rolled up, their hair pulled back, pushing wheelbarrows, looking up at these big guys saying, did your parents teach you anything? <laughs> Third thing. And this occurs a lot in chapter 3, but I'm just going to pull it out one time. Um, there's an expression that appears a lot, and I'm, just, this, I'm going to cherry pick this one. This is chapter 3, verse 28. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. It seems that Nehemiah said, okay, here's how you're going to know you're part of the wall. Do the section across from your house. Now, to me, that seems brilliant because the first thing, there would be great motivation here because who's going to want the enemy to break in across the street from you? But the second thing is, I sort of get this in my mind. If you're walking down the street next to the wall and there's a, you see a lousy job, you don't, have to look, you don't have to ask who did this job. They live right there. <laughs> Third thing I see is personal responsibility. And guys, I know this isn't popular today. I know we live in a very different age than my parents and grandparents grew up in. But could I just say this today? Nobody owes me a living. If I'm able-bodied, nobody owes me a living. If you're able-bodied, nobody owes you a living. You are accountable and responsible for your personal responsibilities. You say, Mark, um, you know, does that mean I'm not to help people? No, a million times no. Obviously, we all need to help each other, but I'm still accountable and responsible for what I'm responsible for, and nobody else is responsible for what I'm responsible to produce. You say, Mark, that's a free market concept. No, that's not a free market concept. That's a God concept. And so what I love about this is everybody was to work on the section of wall across from their house because that was the only way the job was going to be completed. 
Okay, I got one more thing, and I'm going to be through here. <laughs> There's just one, one person who got this in the Bible. And we've already seen very important things. Don't be too big to the job. Be willing to do extra. Be, be willing to do more than is required. I will tell you this. I am convinced that that is the quick trip to promotion in life, being willing to do more than is required. And then personal responsibility, just, just stepping up to the plate for what you're personally responsible for. But this fourth thing I find interesting because only one person got singled out for this. Some dude named Baruch, verse 20. Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. The word Hebrew word for zealously there means on fire. I mean, I sort of hear the voice of Robin Williams, you know. Uh, you, you know, I hear this guy come out, good morning, Jerusalem, we're putting up the walls today. <laughs> you ever work with anybody like that? I mean, it's just like, it don't matter what they've got to do. It's good morning. I'm glad to be here. We are doing a job today. Attitude. You know, I want to ask you three questions here, and maybe I should have started with these three questions, because these are attitude questions. Let's, let me give you the first one, and, and I'm not going to talk about the answer. You've got to wrestle with this. Does a job have to feel meaningful to have meaning for you? Do you have to feel the meaning for it to have meaning? Question two, is it possible, this is for each of us to ask, is it possible that I'm blinding myself to the euphoria of my job? Question number three, here's a big one, especially in a culture where we're always measuring ourselves by how people look at us. Is it essential that others think what I'm doing is important? as long as I, God and I both know it is. See, I, I think that was what, was what was in Baruch. And by the way, for any of you who are in management, Baruch's name means blessing. These people are a blessing to have around. I, I think Baruch came to work saying, this job doesn't have to feel meaningful for, it to me, to, for me to have meaning in it. And, and I think he was, he was coming to work saying, you know what, I'm going to find the euphoria in this job. And beyond that, Nobody else has to see what I see. It appears that when Baruch went to work and said, good morning, Jerusalem, we're building the walls, the leaders of Tekoa looked at each other and said, is that man crazy? No, no, they were crazy. They were lazy. I really take a risk preaching this message today because some of you could say, this is not really a Christian message. This is not really a, a faith-based message. This is about work. And yet you and I need to understand that God cares very much about how we live our lives and how we work. Let me read a couple of verses to you that will help us wrap our arms around that. In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. What do you do? Do it with everything you've got. Be like Baruch. But there's a verse in the New Testament that carries it to a whole nother level. And, and if you're unhappy with your job right now, or if you're unhappy, let, especially, let me say this, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Anybody here having a hard time with your job because of the person you work for? You don't have to just hold on to that. Colossians 3.23, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Let me say that again, different inflection. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, 
and that the master you are serving is Christ. See, this is what blows us up when we, when we work for somebody who's different. Oh, I'm in overtime? I'm sorry about that. They don't have the big numbers up there on the screen. That's a good excuse, isn't it? Um, here's the thing. A lot of us, we, we struggle when we work for somebody who's difficult to work with because we sort of see our future in the hands of this man or this woman. And it's like, wow, well, I have a really hard time working here because I feel like my destiny is in the hands of this person who doesn't like me. But the Bible says, look, whatever you do, work willingly because you're not working for that person. You're working for Jesus. And it is Jesus who will reward you. Now, here's the weird thing about that. A lot of you think that Jesus is going to reward you for what you do for him. Totally, he will. But I want to tell you something else. I think if you work for, at McDonald's, because I used that as an illustration earlier, I think God's going to reward you for working at McDonald's if you do it as though you're working for Christ. I think if you're a plumber, God's going to reward you for being a plumber. You say, oh, I knew you'd reward me for volunteering at New Spring, but a plumber? Is God going to reward me for being a plumber? If you don't charge too much, yes, he will. <laughs> no. <laughs> Poor plumbers. They do such awful work, and then they get... Rip for charging too much. You know what? If you're a lawyer here today, you say, Mark, is it possible God will bless me for being a lawyer? Yeah, if you follow the law and you do it for Christ. Lawyers work hard. I mean, that's the thing you need to realize. When you go to work, if you go to work with the four things that we talked about, you're not too big to do it and you do more than is required and, 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 and you have a wonderful attitude toward what you do and you take your own personal responsibility and you work as though you're working for the Lord, God will reward you for whatever it is you do for a living because work is sacred to him. He is the one who has designed us to work. Six days you will labor. He said that is God and God will reward you for the kind of worker you are. Thank you for this Labor Day experience we've had together. God bless. I'll see you next weekend.